You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dylan Kearns, creator of the open source projects Elm GraphQL and Elm Pages, one of which he's now getting paid full time to work on. We talk about how we go about designing software, especially big software projects that get used by many other programmers. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, software design. So Dylan, I know that you have created the, the two main open source projects that I know of yours are Elm Pages and Elm GraphQL, both of which are very widely used in the Elm community. Do you want to just describe briefly what those are for people who aren't familiar with them? Sure. So Elm GraphQL you might be surprised to find that is a GraphQL library for Elm. <laughs> gives you a type safe way to consume GraphQL. That was sort of like one of my really early Elm projects, but I think it struck a chord. You know, obviously type safety is something that Elm developers, it turns out, care a lot about. And GraphQL <laughs> is a pretty popular sort of type safe way to describe APIs. So I think they're a really good match. So it's sort of a code generation based library for that. And Elm Pages uses a lot of code generation as well. It's sort of more of a meta framework for Elm. The previous versions, versions one and two, were much more focused on static site generation. And the upcoming v3 release, which is um, in an alpha phase right now, is more of a sort of server side rendering approach. So you can build more sort of apps that are dependent on user data and dynamic data. And you can use it as sort of like a an intermediary layer for sort of fetching data and getting some of that state on the server side instead of in loading spinners on the client side. Right. So this is like SSR, I guess, is the usual abbreviation mm -hmm. for this. There right? are lots of Step acronyms. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Hydration, a lot of mm -hmm. buzzwords. Okay, cool. So as I understand it, you have recently started uh, working on Elm Pages full-time, like somebody's paying you to do it full-time. Yeah, I've been doing that for a couple of months. A uh, company's been funding to help support my work on that, and I've been able to focus on the release full-time, which has been incredible. It is certainly the most ambitious thing I've ever built. <laughs> and it's getting to the point where my brain is turning to mush a little bit because there are so many decisions to be made and... You know, I feel like it's it's an exercise in like it's it's this over and over again, looking at a design, thinking of all the possible ways to do it, enumerating those possibilities, and then thinking them through long enough to figure out which one you like and which one you don't like, which set of trade-offs, and then considering those with all the other sets of trade-offs and looking at all the prior art, other frameworks approaches to doing it and letting all those things simmer and rinse and repeat. And it can be exhausting, but it's also extremely rewarding when you sort of like hit on a design that in retrospect, people look at the design and they say, oh, that's obvious. It's not notable. <laughs> right. It took so much time to get to an obvious intuitive design that doesn't seem notable. Oh, that, that really resonates with me. I, I definitely like... Something I'll often do is I'll write down like design notes for some language feature or something in Rock and or or, or uh, you know like open source like libraries and stuff I've made in the past. I'll be like, I know that we want to solve this problem and it's like an about this way. And I'll write down a draft of an API and I'll be like, I don't know, it like it works. 
but I don't, I'm not really happy with it, whatever. And then at some point, usually after I just got out of the shower or like in the middle of a shower or, or something mm-hmm. like that, or just, like just woke up in the morning. And so that, you know, the, I don't know what the terminology is for this, but like parts of your brain work on problems like this in the background, right. Yep. When, you're, when you're doing other stuff. And at some point I'll just be like, that's it. That's the design. I, that's definitely the design. And then, yeah. and then there's this, there's this moment of worry. Like, what if I miss something? Like, what if it's not like, it, it seems like it would, it solves everything, but like, did I miss something? And then, but then like, there's that worry, but at the same time, it's like, no, no, this is it. This yeah. is it. <laughs> and, then, right. and then like, and then, yeah, you like, you put it together. And then like, oftentimes I'll share design documents with different people. And I try to, I don't know about you, but like, I, I always try to treat first impressions as precious. I will usually hesitate to like blast it out to a bunch of people. Instead, I'll be like, okay, I have this draft. I'm going to share it with one person and see what they think of it. And then based on their feedback, I'll iterate on it and then show it to another person and get their first impression of the new one, not having seen the previous one. And then eventually I finally like show it to someone. They're like, yeah, I mean, okay, look, look, looks good. Right. They have, they have no feedback right, because it's like, right. <laughs> or, or, or their feedback is like really trivial stuff. Like maybe like, is this like a slightly better name for this one argument or something like, okay. All right. Or, like, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When it's getting <laughs> to nitpicks and you, and you have to try really hard not to be like that scene in Silicon Valley where they're doing user testing behind a two-sided mirror or whatever. And then he storms into the room and tells them how they're using the thing wrong and how they're supposed to be <laughs> using the thing. It's really tempting to like kind of miss the chance to get that really useful first impression feedback uh, by like wanting to like explain your reasoning and why you did it. So it takes some patience to just put it out there and be like, what do you think? And let the questions come up. Yeah. And there's definitely this gap between like my experience and the end user's experience because the end user's experience when they see one of these things, like you said, is like, oh, this is nice. And my experience is like, yes, yes, I finally found it. Yes. Right, oh, I, I found right. something that feels nice. Right, right. <laughs> but it's so exciting because it takes so much work and effort to find that. Yeah. There's a talk that I really enjoyed uh, that, that resonated with sort of my process in these things a lot by Rich Hickey called Hammock Driven Development. Oh, and I love that. That's my favorite Rich Hickey talk. M- mine too. Yeah. So I actually think quite consciously about, as you were saying, that sort of background processing. I think that our brains are really, our sort of conscious prefrontal cortex brains are not that smart. <laughs> They're <laughs> good at certain things, but our subconscious brain is way smarter, um, way more capable of doing like very powerful and creative things. And so the job of our sort of conscious brain is to tee things up for our background processing, I think. And I, th- I think that's relevant whether you're an API designer, programming language designer, or writing application code, you have to trust your background processing and you have to try to put things in front of your background processing so it can go be productive while you're in the shower. (laughs) I love this. I actually think of it, and this is like maybe a a bit of a weird metaphor, but I actually, I don't know, the the more I think about it, the more I think it's it's a good metaphor is it's like CPU and GPU. Mm -hmm. Like they're both good things, but they also have limitations. So it's like, on the one hand, you could just be like insist on doing everything in CPU, but then you're missing out on all this like incredible processing power that's like super parallel and stuff on the GPU. And if you can 
sort of like you said, tee things up. Like if you can sort of get them into that GPU format, which in my case is like, I often think about it as like putting this on the shelf or like letting it bake. And like Rich Hickey in that, in that talk, Hammock Development um, talks about like some other ways of thinking about it. But it's like, I have to solve this design problem. Often I, I know that one of the important ingredients is just time. And so I'll be like, okay, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to like put load it in my head and then I'm just going to put it on the shelf, put it in the oven, whatever, and just not come back to it for like a week. But I know that like at some point in that week, there's a pretty good chance that I'm not, maybe I'm not going to have this epiphany where it's like, oh, I solved it. This is the answer. Like hopefully that happens, but often it doesn't. But quite often, more often than not, in fact, something new will come into my brain at some point in that week. And it'll be like, here's what you were missing last time. And it's, even if it's not straight to the answer, it's progress. And now I can go back and edit that document and be like, okay, change this, change this, change this. And then, yeah. So the less confident I am in a design, the more I try to plan on like solving it later, if possible. <laughs> and like right. try to not try to work on something that's not blocked and just treat that as like blocked for now. Right. Yeah. Keep your options open for the things you you sense may have better design possibilities that you might think of in the future. And uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Or like work on the implementation for something where I'm like, this is done. This is good. This already feels nice. Like I don't, I don't yeah. need more time in the oven on this versus something else. So I'm like, okay. And sometimes that yeah. can feel weird because it's like, I'm spending time on something that's not blocked. It's like this design is not going to come up for months maybe, but it's like, taking the whole process into account efficient in the sense that like, I don't want to wait until I'm just blocked because then I've lost the option to apply time to the design process, which is like what what my brain's GPU equivalent needs. (laughs) So it it needs like a week of like, you know, background processing and showers. (laughs) Right. And, And also, you know, I think our brains do something very different when we're faced with a concrete implementation. And this is one of the reasons that I think that like test-driven development is very powerful because you're looking at concrete cases and we can reason about those more easily in in a lot of cases. But also when we're looking at designs and test-driven development helps us kind of look at our designs more quickly as well and get our brains thinking about that. When we're doing API design, like I find if I put an ugly API design in front of my eyes for too long, I will want to change it. And, and <laughs> that's like a feedback mechanism. So like, I really like this approach in design in general too. I think often we try to filter out bad ideas and that can slow us down and turn off the funnel of good ideas. So I, I, like, yeah. I think a lot about diverging, converging as two separate phases, which I think it's really powerful when you can truly separate those. So, you know, I used to do like a lot of facilitation and organizational coaching. And one of the things I would think a lot about when you see teams trying to come up with ideas for, you know, whatever, how to build a feature, doing a retrospective, you see people trying to go to the converge phase too quickly where they're trying to filter out bad ideas. Right. Filtering does not belong in the diverge phase. The diverge phase is when you let all the ideas flow, get them all out there. And so divergence, you know, that phase is characterized by enumerating possibilities and considering possibilities and going down tangents and things emerge from that process that might not otherwise emerge. And then once you get the ideas out on the table, then you start filtering evaluating. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Do I like this? Do I not like this? 
but it can be very powerful. Like one of my favorite techniques is to say, what would be the most obvious, clearly bad, but easy way to do this? Like what's <laughs> clearly a bad solution? And oftentimes, if you start with that, you will either say, you know what, why couldn't I just do that? Or you, you say, why couldn't I do that? And then you think of three reasons and you say, well, maybe I could solve those three things yeah. with this other similar thing. That also really resonates with me. I've definitely had plenty of times where I've had an initial reaction to a design. Sometimes it's mine, but also sometimes it's just like something that somebody else suggested, right? It's like somebody will come up with a feature request. And oftentimes I'll look at it and be like, oh, we're not doing that. That's a terrible idea. But of course, I don't like say that to them. That's like my my initial reaction. Right. But I've learned over the years that it happens often enough that after I like try to think through that actual design that like maybe even most of the time my initial reaction was right. But it's definitely not like zero. And it's not really close to zero percent of the time that I end up after like really engaging with it and thinking through it that I'm like, actually, this is a good idea and we should do this. Yeah. And maybe not in the exact way that it was originally proposed, or maybe not, if I thought of it, maybe not in the exact form, but there's quite often something there that I hadn't thought of previously. And so, yeah, like you said, filtering prematurely, you miss out on stuff. Yeah. Like whenever I look at something new, my new heuristic that I've developed over the years is I, I now try to say, have I thought through this before? Mm, like, is there something yeah. new here? Right. right. If there isn't something new here, I need to explore it. If it's something where I'm like, I actually completely thought through this idea already. Like I've had this exact idea or an idea that is like functionally identical to it. Like there's no nuance. There's no differences between it. Then I'm just like, okay, this goes in the like already decided. <laughs> right. But as is often the case, maybe there's something a little bit different about it, in which case I, I want to reconsider that or it's totally different. And no matter what my initial reaction is to it, I want to say, okay, this is unexplored. I want to explore it. And right. like, I, I didn't think to explore it before. And so this is an opportunity to potentially discover something new. Right. And, and even just capturing those things, writing them down, writing what, like your impressions. I think I like this about this. I think I don't like this. Mm -hmm. Put it down somewhere. I think you're a writer yourself. And I, from what I understand, like this is a, something that they teach in writing that to separate editing from drafting. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. And to not, if you're trying to edit while you're drafting, you're never going to get that draft out there because you're going to be so caught up on the editing mode with your editing hat on. The most famous quote I can think of on that topic is from Mark Twain. And the way that he phrased it is write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> like, which, I mean, if you think about it, what really like the essence of what he's saying is like, just when you're writing, don't have inhibitions, don't have yeah. like, don't hold back, don't edit, just get it all out there. Yeah. And then afterwards, once it's all out there, now you can, okay, put your inhibitions back in. So we're up metaphorically. And then be mm -hmm. like, okay, now I can look at this with fresh eyes and critical eyes and take an ax to it. Right. But yeah, I, I definitely have struggled with one of the implications of this being that it's daunting to think about like, am I really going to explore every single like idea? Yeah. There's so many of them. Yeah. And in the past, I have used that as somewhat of a crutch to say, well, I, I don't need to explore that much. Like, surely, surely I know, like, you know, this, this hubris of like, surely I have 
good enough taste or enough knowledge or like, I don't need to explore every single thing. And okay, granted, like not every single thing, there's definitely some line where it's like, okay, this idea is like, I'm not going to do it because that requires quantum computers to be mainstream. And like, that's just not, you know, like there's definitely some, some line that you have to draw, but that line is a lot further out than I would have guessed. Even after I've been programming for like, I don't know, 10 years or something, the, the older I get, the more time I spend with programming, the further out that line seems to move for me. Right. But that is a very good point about, I mean, where to put our focus, right? That I think like one of the things that I think about a lot is in my head, for whatever reason, this, the term is engineering, that mm. it's all about trade-offs and there's never a perfect solution, but I think there's a compelling story to certain sets of trade-offs that complement each other that you say, like, this thing has this one thing that could be a downside, but it actually is what makes this really interesting thing work. You know, right. so you say, well, yeah. everything, these are all pure functions, but this is what you get in return. And that coherent set of trade-offs tells a compelling story, and that's what's a good design. So I think it's really important to stay focused on what are those sort of core set of values and decisions, like the core premise. And everything has to be grounded in that. And, and if you get too focused on these sort of nuances and, and small details of design decisions, you can lose sight of those sort of core decisions and that can water down the design. So I think it always has to start with being grounded in a core set of values and a core sort of premise. Yeah, there's definitely got to be some principles uh, like of, you know, no matter what this, this will not be sacrificed. Because I think like when you do that, the there's a general category of this type of thing, which I like that you gave the example of pure functions. And the general category is non-obvious trade-offs. And I can see those in both directions. So one is obvious downsides, but non-obvious upsides. So that's where you like look at something, you're like, oh, that sucks because of X. Yeah. But you don't realize if you did that, like what would that unlock? You don't, you don't realize the upsides that, that you only see the downsides. And mm -hmm. then also the reverse can happen too, where like non-obvious, uh, sorry, obvious upsides, non-obvious downsides, right? Where it's like, oh, this is actually a trap but it doesn't look like a trap. It looks like, oh, this is great. Why, why doesn't everyone do this? And then it yeah. turns out, you know, and, and maybe it's not even, why does everyone do this? It's just like, why shouldn't I do that? This will, this will be strictly better. It's like, oh, actually, as it turned out, there was a downside that I hadn't thought of. And that's another thing that like the more time I've spent with programming and like API design, like programming with other programmers in mind, especially, is just trying to think, okay, what am I missing? Like I can see an obvious downside here, but what's the non-obvious upside that this unlocks? There's got to be something. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but like more often than not, there's something. And so I try to like hunt for those and try to find them all and like list them out so I can actually look at the trade-offs with like the full list. Because if you, it's like list of trade-offs, it's like, well, here are the cons and I don't know, there's probably no pros. So like, obviously don't do that, right? right? right. It's like, no, no, like what's, what's the full list? Like I need to, I need to be honest about like, what are the actual pros? Even if I don't like this, like, are there some pros? There probably are. What are they? Let's list them out. And then often when I force myself to do that, I, I will end up getting on a roll with the pros. And that's often, I, now that I think of it, a quite often way that I, something that I initially had a negative reaction to ends up being something that I sell myself on is that I'm like, no, no, I have to list out the pros so that I can make an informed decision about whether or not this is a good idea. 
And then my mindset shifts when I'm listening out the pros. Like, oh, actually, I thought this, this the benefit this, but ooh, and I would that would unlock this thing that I've been trying to find a way to do for you know a year. <laughs> right, it becomes your protagonist because you're giving it yeah. attention, so you're rooting for it. Right, and then the same thing with uh, you know on the flip side with non obvious uh, downsides is like if I think of an idea I'm like that sounds awesome, I'm totally going to do that. I have to force myself to stop and be like, okay, but what are the downsides? Like there's definitely right. downsides that I'm not thinking of in this first impression where I, <laughs> I really like the idea. What are they? What am I missing? I need to write some cons over here to balance out the pros. And then, yeah, like conversely, I end up like somewhat rooting against it by the end of being like, Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. And then oftentimes with things like that, where like I have this initial excitement, but then I actually write out the cons and they're more serious than I thought it's not so much that I like throw it away because I'm still kind of attached to it from that initial excitement. It's more like I'll just mm-hmm. file it under like, well, I don't know. There's unsolved problems here. I'll come back to that later. And sometimes yeah. maybe after like a month or something, I just like, I think of an answer to deal with the downsides, but, but other times it's like, yeah, actually we shouldn't do it. And you got to that point where you could see the pros and cons clearly. And that might lead to some insight down the line. You know, it makes me think of in sort of, thinking through chess tactics, one of the most common mistakes is not evaluating moves because they're quote unquote, obviously bad. Oh. Uh, so for example, well, obviously this move would just make me lose my queen instantly. So it's a bad move, right? Mm-hmm. It's an obviously bad move, but well, if that move, here's the key. The key is if that move puts the opponent's king in check and forces a small number of possible responses. So they can literally only make one or two possible moves in response. Now, it's very important to evaluate that obviously bad move because you can evaluate it very clearly. And it's less expensive to evaluate that. Um, and if there's a checkmate down the line, you can you can see that and you can sort of, you can use that extreme measure because there's an extreme cost to you But there's an extreme benefit, which is forcing a move to your opponent. So I find this, and often when you're doing like chess tactics puzzles, that's the thing you learn is, oh, I'm writing off these obviously bad moves, quote unquote, too early. And I'm missing the the counter side, the other side of the coin, which is the really good benefit to that obviously bad thing. And often that's what a really compelling design is, I think, is when you just like a really compelling chess move when you make that like those are the things that people are talking about for decades some bobby fisher move that he <laughs> does a queen sacrifice bishop sacrifice rook sacrifice checkmate and like <laughs> wow how did he come up with that but the, those are the really interesting things when you're making something that seemingly is a bad decision but it comes with an upside that is extremely compelling and that's when you get some really interesting engineering stories, right? If you're just sort yeah. of like going in the middle middle of the pack, you might not come up with a really compelling design. You might come up with sort of a lukewarm design. It's like really interesting when you make some bold trade-offs. Right. So this reminds me of two things. So one is I'm going to take the analogy further and then we'll talk about the software implications. So the, taking the analogy further. So I used to spent a lot of time playing competitive Magic the Gathering, especially mm-hmm. in college and stuff. And there's this very famous match from 2001 where the guy who was the best player in the world at the time is like in the finals of the tournament. And he's in a position where he's losing. It's like he things are not going well for him. And he starts making to so the commentators 
a series of very inexplicable, strange moves and like sacrifices and stuff like that. It's like, why, why is he doing this? And I forget if a commentator figured it out before it actually happened, but it's it basically like he's got like 40, 50 cards left in his deck. And the commentator is like, there's two cards in his deck where if he draws one of them based on the way that he's playing, he's going to win. Like he has a path to victory. But if he just continues playing a normal sort of conservative game, he's going to lose no matter what he draws. Right. So he's basically, they call it playing to the outs. It's like he has he has one way to get out of this situation, or in this case, two ways out of like 50 cards. The odds are not in his favor. It's definitely a risk that he's taking. But if he looks at the alternative, it's like, well, the alternative is even worse. Like the alternative is like, basically, no matter what I draw, I'm going to lose. And as it turned out in this like famous moment, he did draw one of the two cards and he did win. And then he won the tournament. And at that point, he like cemented his reputation as like the best player in the game. Mm -hmm. So what this reminds me of is that oftentimes when you are making a design decision, there's an element of risk. So like in chess, you have perfect information, right? Like if, if you can see the like sufficiently many board states in advance, you can be like, right. okay, I got it. <laughs> but oftentimes with, with design, there's just a bunch of unknown variables. It's like, are people going to like this? I'm reminded of, I've watched this video once, but it really, really stuck with me. It was from a Russ Conf keynote, I want to say in 2018. And they were talking about how they have this RFC process for um, people talking about like discussing new feature proposals. And apparently it's very common that whatever the tone of the first comment happens to be sets the tone for all the subsequent comments. And so if you're lucky and the first person to comment really likes it, or mm -hmm. as I discussed on a different episode of software Unscripted, scripted, uh, you know, you could just bring in somebody to, to be like, okay, fire off a comment, a positive comment right away. Right. <laughs> Try to set that tone. But basically like that really can kind of determine like the, the fate of the, the thing, regardless of the quality of the proposal. And mm -hmm. I think it's to some extent the same thing with design, where if you're taking a design risk and you're doing something that's not commonly done, there is a risk that people will end up reacting negatively to it, even if it's actually a good idea, just because it seems weird or whatever. And then maybe it ends up not working out. Like in that famous magic game, the risk was that he didn't draw one of those two cards. And then he looks like he threw the game away. It's like, well, you were behind, but you kept making these weird moves that made you even more behind. Like, why were you doing that? You could have just, and then everybody would be saying, you know, what a fool he could have, he could have, you know, he just threw that game away. But instead he was trying to do even better than like the default outcome. And I think it's a similar thing with a lot of design questions where not all the time, but, but some of the time. There's a non-obvious design where you look at the pros and cons and you're like, this is the best way to do it, all things considered, or maybe it's the least bad way to do it because there are some obvious designs that look more normal, but they have non-obvious downsides or mm -hmm. this way looks weird, but, and there's some obvious downsides to it, but it has non-obvious upsides. And I love the example that you gave of pure functions where it's like one of those, one of those cases where the downsides are obvious. It's like, Right. There's a bunch of stuff you're not allowed to do in a pure function. Obvious downsides. What are the upsides? And they're less obvious. And like, that's why, you know, you talk to somebody who's familiar with functional programming and oftentimes like it maybe depends on their ability to articulate those, like whether or not the, the person who's unfamiliar with functional programming decides that it sounds like a good idea or not. And that's the same thing with any kind of design decision. It's like conclude that this unusual design is best but people can have all sorts of different reactions to it. And there can be memes about like, 
this or that is obviously good or obviously bad. You know, yeah. I guess the risk is <laughs> that people will conclude it's obviously bad. And perhaps the reason they conclude that is just that they're missing some piece of information that went behind that design decision that it's like, it's actually preventing a whole bunch of bad outcomes, but people don't see that. And so because they're prevented, nobody even sees the symptom that, that led you to make that design that way in the first place. And so, you know, people end up maybe rejecting the design, even though it had these good characteristics. It's always a risk. Yeah, I think that maybe people who have used and enjoyed Elm are predisposed. Uh, either they were before they chose to use Elm or Elm converted them to this predisposition to see the potential huge benefits of a bold and seemingly limiting decision. Like, yeah. why would I limit where I can do side effects when I can just do them anywhere? Like, that's how is that not strictly a bad thing. Like there are less things that I can do, but you see the, the benefits that come from that, you know, like your scaling Elm talk at Elm Europe a few years back was, I think a really good kind of exploration of that, what that means in Elm when like, it's like, well, here's how we can use that to narrow down kind of following what Elm code could be or could not be doing and eliminating possibilities. But I think that part of good design is number one, you have to make the choice, but number two, you have to then capitalize on the benefits that come along with that choice. And I think people who have used languages like Elm that make these bold trade-offs maybe have a more intuitive appreciation of how you can really capitalize on that to have some like bold design decisions that give you huge wins. But you have to then capitalize on them. You have to follow through on that. Yeah, I think Elm definitely selects for that. I think if you're not interested in those types of things and you'd rather stick with something more conventional, then you're probably not going to end up sticking with Elm. <laughs> yeah, which like Redux is sort of a watered down version of the Elm architecture, right? It's like your reducers should use pure functions, but there's nothing preventing that. And you should use, you know, immutable data structures, but you don't have to. And so you just get the watered down experience. So uh, yeah, I just think that like whenever you're making a constraint in a design choice, I think the question should be, what can I do with this constraint? Like, I think that there's a tendency to think of constraints, like we don't like being constrained. Why would I opt to be constrained? But someone who loves Elm is going to be like, why would I opt to be constrained? Look at all the amazing guarantees I get. It's right. two sides of the <laughs> same coin. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think even beyond constraints, there's also just like complexity and simplicity, like getting more options mm -hmm. in and of itself means that you have more decisions to make and also that things can get more complex. So I've been using Rust a lot for the rock compiler. There was one time where I, I wrote a function. I say one time, I've done this several times where in Elm, I would say this function takes a list of strings, period. That's it. It takes a list of strings. <laughs> And yeah. in Rust, I will say this function takes an i and where i is into iterator of s and s is as ref stir. And it's just this <laughs> soup of like symbols and like lots of words. And like, really mm -hmm. what I'm saying is I want this to take a list of strings, but also maybe something else that's not quite in that format, but can be converted into something that's approximately that format. And the reason I do this is because the whole reason I'm using Rust is like I want like more performance. And so I don't want to have to convert it to a list of strings. I do extra allocations, blah, blah, blah. But 
The whole reason that I need to do that in turn is that in Rust, there's a lot of different representations of things. And so like in Elm, mm -hmm. there's not like 10 different ways to represent a string or like something string-like. There's just string. That's it. And so on the one hand, that means that, you know, it is living in some ways. There's, you know, different performance things you can unlock in Rust. But although I say that, but also it's the case that like part of the reason that you need to do those different things to get those different performance characteristics in Rust has more to do with the fact that Elm can automatically do like references and managing lifetimes and stuff like that in Rust. All that has to be done manually. So mm -hmm. I understand why things are that way in Rust, but it's worth noting that Elm also could have added like more of those representations and then make some generic like iterator concept where you can like pass in an iterator to something instead of a, you know, an actual list, blah, blah, blah. But again, it's like, there's this non-obvious upside of list string. That's my API, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, and, and like the more time I spend with Rust, the more I end up using these advanced features. And I remember when I was a beginner at Rust, I would look at a signature like that and I would just have no idea what's going on. I'm just like, this is, what do I pass this thing? It's like, what is an into iterator what, of S? What S is as ref stir? What? I don't know. I got to, <laughs> can I satisfy that? How do I satisfy that? I, I want to call you function. How do I do that? Right. And in L it's like list of strings. I've got it. I, okay. Maybe I'll get yeah. a list of strings. And it's not just a beginner experience though. Like even as you know, an advanced rust user now, I don't, I don't think I can claim to be an expert, but I think I can, at least at this point after, I don't know, like four years or something, uh, at least one of which has been uh, something close to part uh, full time. But even still as an advanced rust user, I don't think that my experience is as nice as my experience with Elm because even though I understand what that means now and I can use it myself and I do use it myself and I think it's the correct choice to use it in many instances because of performance I still look at that type and it's just more for my brain to try and process and think about and there's just like in Elm I'm like list of strings moving on to the next thing and in Rust it's like okay yeah. do I want into iterator or do I want iterator here is it should I do I need this to be an exact size iterator because maybe I need to like you know get the length off of it and it's size hint is not enough and there's just like all these different things to consider and in Elm it's just like list of strings and your brain can move on to working with the rest of your you know program there is one interesting thing that I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately with designing things in Elm which is that for better and for worse you really have to think through the use cases you want to support and design for them very explicitly. And <laughs> yeah, when, and when there's like a well-constrained domain and you can find that clear abstraction, you say, this takes a list of strings here, or you enumerate, these are the possible things this can take. This is how you can build these things. It's amazing. It's like yeah. an amazing experience for people using Elm and like experiencing these clear constraints. But for designing APIs and frameworks, it means that you really need to take responsibility for user experiences. I think you coined that phrase for the Elm community, maybe? Did I? I don't know. Evan, <laughs> Evan included it in his tweet about sort of the Elm philosophy, but uh, someone or other decided that was an idea that's important in Elm. And I think it, it really is emblematic of Elm in many ways. But it's a very interesting process how you sort of take responsibility for the user in Elm, yeah. both the end user and, and the developer, I think. Right. Like another way to say it, like the negative version of that is to say, don't say, well, that's their fault. 
they shouldn't have used it. They shouldn't have misused it in that way. It's like, no, no, that's my fault right. because I made something that was so easy to misuse. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes it's like, well, I can make something that's impossible to misuse, but it's A, miserable to use, or B, really, really slow. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. okay, sometimes that's like the least bad option is to make it potentially misusable or potentially too easy to misuse. Right. But relatively rarely, like almost always there's something where you can get, it's like, nice to use overall even if it's not maximally nice and it's fast even though it's not maximally fast and you know like balancing all three of those right yeah and i think we you know i mean the 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 other side of that is you could say well don't tell me how to use this thing maybe i have some way to use this that you haven't thought of right and if you feel very strongly about that you might not like a language like elm and maybe rock Maybe someone would feel differently about Rock because there are certain abstractions like open tag unions. I think that may sort of make some some of those, they may make that calculus a little bit different. Like Not so far. Really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically the same. Because like I wonder, okay, so like I have a Markdown parser package that I maintain in Elm, which it exposes an AST that you can parse into. You can parse into these Markdown blocks and... Well, let's say you want to map over that AST and you say, I want to, this could be a paragraph block, this could be a block quote, but you want to map over that AST and transform the parsed markdown. And you say, well, I want to turn some of these markdown blocks into a different type. And now I want to intermix these different custom types. Now that becomes quite a burden, right? And there's this composability problem where Elm is saying, you need to be very explicit about saying this is the type this can be. It's this custom type, this union type, and not anything else. It's not an open tag union. So that's a challenge for people using Elm sometimes. Not often, but when it is, it can be cumbersome. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So as opposed to being able to add your own variants. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that that hasn't come up yet in Rock. I guess somebody could do that. Basically, the way that open tag unions end up getting used in practice, and for those mm-hmm, listening mm-hmm. who aren't familiar with this feature, it's like a little bit of, it's like an algebraic data type where you can add new variants on the fly without uh, defining them ahead of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without without going on a huge tangent that like <laughs> of like explaining all the implications of that, but uh, in OCaml they're called polymorphic variants. But mm-hmm. basically, they're used in two ways. So one is you use them in, in practice so far. One is as a closed tag union, which is just straight up an algebraic data type. It's this totally normal, like some type, you know, custom type in Elm. And then the second way that they're used is for uh, errors. Because if you're like, this function can return a result, which has this error type, or a task that has this error type, and then you chain a bunch of those together, the errors accumulate into one giant union of all the things that can go wrong. And that's really nice for error handling, because you don't have to do a like, okay, map the error onto this like, custom type that you know you have to define mm-hmm. it at times so like, they just they just accumulate that's it like those are the two use cases that we've seen hmm. so far maybe this like extensible markdown might be another but i haven't seen anybody try to do anything with that yet maybe somebody will come up with something else in the future hmm. interesting yeah <laughs> yeah i mean the extensibility problem is is really challenging and you know i mean another area that you're exploring in rock that I'm really curious about is like the platform idea. And I mean, I do actually think that I think that with a little bit of imagination, people are pretty surprised what you can do without 
having some sort of native concept of extensible platforms. Like, like with Elm Pages, like Elm Pages is very much a platform. Like Elm Pages is very much, it relies on code generation a fair amount to do that, but it's basically wrapping the user's application so it can manage the routing and it can manage fetching data when it goes to a new route and, you know, handling gathering that data on the server side and serializing it automatically. And there are so many things you can do building a meta platform with a little imagination and a little code generation. But the concept of like giving a native way to create platforms is really fascinating too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be, I mean, we'll see, but I I expect that there's going to be two categories of platforms. One is, it's basically like, you know, in the Elm sense, like Elm treats the browser as its metaphorical platform in the rock sense, right? It's like right. there's one way to use Elm and that's to compile stuff for the browser. Now, granted, in practice, if you want, and we have both done this, you and I, you can compile Elm code to JavaScript that's intended to run on Node.js. Totally right. can do it. It's not like officially supported, but it works. But the whole point is like, it's it's this domain specific, like Elm is going to be really good for the browser. And that was explicitly like what I wanted to try and recreate and rock, but for sort of the long tail of use cases. And so that's where the like moving that into user space idea comes. And so one example, obvious example of this is like, you could have a really big platform, which is a server. And that's, that's the most Elm like way to do things. It's like, you have this domain of like making a server side web app, web server that you want to, you want to write and rock. And Mm -hmm. that's a really big platform, but it's also totally fine. If you want to have just this tiny little platform, that's basically just like, I have a huge game written in C++ or in Rust or something like that. And I want to do some parts of it in Rock instead of Lua. And that's it. And so then you have this really small platform where it's just like, I don't give you much in the way of primitives. Maybe it doesn't give you anything. Like maybe it's it doesn't even give you any effects that you can run. It's just like, yeah, I just you're just going to work with data structures. And maybe you don't even ever publish this platform for other people to use. It's just like, well, this is very bespoke to my game. So like, why would I bother publishing that? Mm-hmm. And I think the difference largely has to do with, well, obviously with use case, but also with, do you want to be just writing rock code or do you want to be writing rock code and some other language at the same time? Because right. if you're making a game in C++ or Rust and you're like, well, I'm already, I, I'm spending most of my time writing C++ or Rust and I want to, I don't want to have my whole code base be in that because List of string, pretty nice if you don't have like really extreme performance requirements, you know? Right. So there's some parts of the game, like menu systems, whatever. I've heard people mention animations is another example that people will sometimes use Lua for. I don't know how that works because I would have guessed that animations would be really performance intensive, but it's maybe it's some part of animations that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. But basically like, okay, in that case, you're going to be using two languages anyway. Why not have one of them be Rock instead of Lua? But on the other side, it's like, what we want to use Rock for at No Red Ink is like use it on servers. And the idea there is that we will have a bunch of people at the company who only know Rock and they don't need to know Rust. They don't need to know C++ in the same way that like right, right. you definitely can use Elm. Like if you take someone who does not know any programming languages and you can you can teach them Elm and they can build a complete web app without ever learning JavaScript. You don't have to know any JavaScript to do Elm. Mm-hmm. And that's, to mm-hmm. me, one of the great things about Elm is that like, I can, unless I really need some sort of, you know, JavaScript interop thing, like I can just, just use Elm. That's, that's, that's what I want to do. Right. 
And similarly, that was like an important design goal from day one is like, yeah, you can have this world where somebody works on the platform and does the equivalent of what Elm has for the browser, where yes, there's a bunch of like under the hood JavaScript stuff that's like making the engine run. But as an Elm program, you don't have to deal with that. And same thing with as a rock program, you can mm-hmm. just build your rock application and not have to worry about, you know, somebody else took care of the platform and you're just dealing with a pure rock API into that. Right. There's so much of that you can actually do with Elm, which doesn't have a sense of like extending to different platforms. But in a sense, actually, Elm is very good at this because if you compare JavaScript and Elm, JavaScript has this approach where you just reach out and use stuff. And Elm is compiled and you can only use things that exist. So you tend to inject things more than just reach out and grab things and say like, I think this is there. I'm just going to require this package. I'm just going to use this global variable. And I think it's there. I think window exists, but it might not. Right. And, and this is increasingly a challenge that a lot of, you know, JavaScript based runtimes are fighting against because you're seeing, you know, I mean, things like remix JS and a lot of these sort of server rendered JavaScript frameworks are trying to target different platforms. They're trying to target Cloudflare workers, which use sort of a custom V8 runtime that is not Node.js. They try to target Dino. They try to target running in browsers or web workers. And it's a challenge. And in a sense, like having a language that is compiled strictly and doesn't just let you reach out and assume things are there actually has a leg up on that. So even though it's like, well, Elm doesn't target Node, Elm targets the browser. Well, you can always inject things. So you can say, hey, give me a function that tells me how to respond to a server request or give me a function that, I don't know, if it's a command line interface building tool, tell me what to output in the console. And and here are some functions that, you know, like if you want to perform a command, perform a side effect, sure, you can't just go perform side effects by calling a function in Elm. But if you return a particular data type as the result of a particular function and the, you know, the framework is calling that user's function, taking that data type, inspecting it and passing back the expected data. Now you've created your own platform in Elm. So, (laughs) and, and in a sense, it's better suited to doing that because you're able to be very explicit about what exists, injects the things that are there, and not just reach out and say, window dot, oh, window doesn't exist in this environment. If I'm in Dino, window is defined. If I'm in Cloudflare workers, it's not defined. Right. So it's funny you should mention that. This actually is a perfect segue into um, something that touches on like all the different things we've talked about. <laughs> uh, so one of the design decisions that I wrestled with in Rock for more than a year is this question of how do we design the package ecosystem in a way where you want to have packages that can be shared across multiple platforms, even though different platforms expose different primitives. So a classic example of this would be, let's say you want to have a, I want to share a package in the package repo that does something to do with writing to the file system. Mm -hmm. Well, not every platform supports that. Like if you've got a platform for writing database plugins, probably is not going to expose a way to just arbitrarily write to the file system or read from the file system for that matter. Same thing. Mm -hmm. If you're on an embedded system, 
Like maybe it doesn't even have that. Maybe everything's just in memory. There's no hard disk. There's no concept of files. And so for a long time, I had this like really complicated design that was like, okay, we're going to have like capability modules. And like, you have to specify that you're able to like support these things. And like your package can't be installed unless the platform exposes those capability modules. And those need to be separately published in a different package so that you can share them across. Well, really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. And at some point, somehow, I don't remember who suggested this. I don't think it was me. But somebody somebody on uh, Rock Zulip said something along the lines of like, well, I just kind of assumed that that just wouldn't be allowed. Like, right. What do you mean? Like, you just can't have effects in your packages. And I was like, oh, huh. And I was thinking like, well, yeah, but like, what if I want to write something that like has to do with files? Like, that's really annoying. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I, I know this from like Elm. You, you don't you can still represent all of the interesting computations. Yep. You just right. don't actually, you, you just stop short of saying like, we're going to actually run a task that writes the file system. I'm just going to return some description of like what work yes. needs to be done. And then you have, as the caller, you have to provide the like platform equivalent, you know, for your particular platform that can do that, but that's it. And right. so there's a several things that are amazing about this design. And it reminds me of like, non-obvious downsides or non-obvious upsides. It's like the downsides mm-hmm. are really obvious. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I wrote my function that writes to the file system. I want to just publish that package. Why are you making me change it so that it like takes an argument and like an extra argument that's a function for like how to turn it into a like write to the file system? I don't want that. Just give me a, let me publish my thing, right? Mm-hmm. So obvious downside, but there's a bunch of upsides as it turns out. So one is security. It means that you no longer have to worry about well, okay, this package returns a task and I think it's just writing to the file system, but what if it's also like in a patch release, it gets compromised and now it's reading from Etsy password. Uh Uh-oh. Well, in this design where you have to give it explicitly all the operations that it wants to do, that's no longer a concern because you're only, even, even if they manage to do it in a like patch release, which wouldn't actually work, like you're only passing it like right to the file system. And not only that, but if you want to, you could pass it a wrapper around like there's no nothing that that package can do can possibly prevent you from giving it a specialized wrapper around like right to the file system that like checks the path and makes sure that it's only right. you know <laughs> writing to like the particular subset of the file system that you're okay with it doing that you expect it to be doing mm-hmm. um and you can make it you know just fail if it, if it tries to misbehave so there's there's a improved security aspect just from that design constraint of like taking away the ability to do this thing. Secondly, it means that every package in the ecosystem works with every possible platform because you have to specify them in such a generic way that it anticipates literally all possible future platforms. If they're capable of writing to the file system, this API will give you a way to call it and do that. It doesn't matter how they're exposing it. Maybe they use streams exclusively. Maybe they don't use tasks. Maybe Mm -hmm. they use command, whatever. It doesn't matter what they use because you've had to write it to be sufficiently generic that they can do that. So definitely there are some obvious yeah. downsides, but like, and then of course there's the, the biggest one, which is like the simplicity of it. It's like the whole package ecosystem is just pure rock. There's no platform specific dependencies in any package. So right. you don't have to have all these complicated extra language features. It's like, no, just like, yes, yeah. you do have to do a little extra work to get it into this format, but then you can just publish it and you're good. So the last thing I wanted to mention about that is just that this is weird. It's unusual. It's a risk. I don't know if it's going to work out. <laughs> like may, maybe everyone ends up being like, what a fool that Richard Feldman was <laughs> to, to think that you could possibly get away with this. But like, yeah, there are enough 
obvious and non-obvious like pros and cons to this that I'm like, yeah, I, I think overall we should try this. Like this seems worth trying because you know, we can't really know until we try it. And like, it seems worth the risk. And like the, the, the only way we're going to find out if the benefits actually in practice outweigh the drawbacks, as I strongly suspect they will, is if we try it. And so, yeah, I think, I think taking the risk is correct here. Yeah. And it's also a cohesive story, right? Yeah. And I think like another sort of design sensibility that I think about a lot, like there was, I heard Linus Torvalds talking about this concept of elegance. And he was saying he thinks one of the most important sensibilities as a programmer is your concept of elegance, which he defined as the ability to see that two things are the same. Huh. And I love that idea. And so, for example, like exceptions and data types. What if they were the same thing? What if there wasn't a special mechanism for control flow where you throw an exception, you catch an exception? We already kind of have a thing that knows how to enumerate what different possibilities there are. So we don't need to be able to handle different types of exceptions and say, this is a checked exception of these types, just have a data type and check that data type. And now we don't have different control flow mechanisms. And so it's just reducing the number of control flow mechanisms. And that is elegance. And I love that sensibility. And I I think... um, what you're describing in rock would fall under that where you're saying like, Hey, what if, what if effects are just data? It's like, and sure, like platforms can consume that data, right? Of course, like what are, what are platforms going to take? Well, give them a data type and they'll do something. That's kind of what platforms know how to do, but (laughs) they're not anything special. They're just a data type that it expects. That's all it is. Yeah. That's a really interesting definition. I hadn't heard that before, but thanks for sharing it. Yeah. I want to make sure before we wrap up to ask you a question that I bet some number of listeners have been wondering since the very beginning of this episode, which is, (laughs) you are now in a small club of people who are getting paid to work full-time on open source software. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did that happen? How how did you swing that? (laughs) Well, I think it it was really just a a company that saw the work I was doing and wanted to wanted to support it. I'm not expecting this to last indefinitely, but they're helping to support my work for now. And I'm building some things they depend on. I'm helping them integrate those things into their products. And nice. it it's a it's a great arrangement. And I th- I think, you know, I mean, I hope that we can get better as a software community at um aligning these incentives with open source, I think that that's like a real opportunity because clearly companies depend on open source and yet it's a tragedy of the common situation where, you know, it's very easy to keep using it, keep expecting high quality output. And then, you know, seeing maintainers get burnt out or pulled into other projects or other communities it's not sustainable often, right? And it's just so interesting that a company could have like a very clear impact on their bottom line by somebody's open source work and yet think, well, they'll keep doing it, I'm sure. And right. <laughs> like, it's not, or it's not my problem to make sure it's funded. And I mean, that's understandable for a company, but I wish we could find a way to better align those incentives. But I do think that there is some sort of a shift going on these days where... 
you know, we've been seeing left pad and these other situations where like, I can't remember the, the most recent one in the NPM ecosystem. There's like one every the, few months yeah, nowadays, long, but yeah. you know, but somebody like pulls out their, makes a breaking upgrade to their package and says, uh, I'm not getting paid for this. So I'm moving on or something. And it's something that millions of people depend on. So there's, there's a, um, there's a real opportunity, you know, to like align these incentives better because clearly companies are benefiting from, from this work. It's important. And so, and I hope in particular in, in the Elm ecosystem, I, um, I hope, like, I just think it's so important for a flourishing ecosystem. Like, we're we're building these constraints, the one side of the coin, but then we need to do more things with those constraints. And I think that a thriving ecosystem is an important part of that. Yeah. I mean, the Elm ecosystem is definitely my favorite, like, package ecosystem that, and, mm-hmm. like, tool ecosystem that I've ever worked with. And it's not as big as NPM, certainly. Like, not, I mean, nothing is, but, like, yeah. or, you know, it's also not as big as several other languages, you know, they're, they're more widely used. But the quality level is just wonderful. Yeah. It's, and it's so consistent. Like, I just love it. So congrats to you for getting to contribute to that wonderfulness uh, full time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Same to you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I can't say that there is no Rocky ecosystem yet, but uh, but I mean, so it's an amazing, amazing news, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, congrats! That's huge. Thank you. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? Not in particular. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about all these things. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. I did too. Thanks, Richard. <laughs>